Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, welcome back again to the If and When podcast. I'm really glad that you're tuning in today. Thanks so much to those who have been tuning in all along. This has been uh, a fun project so far. Here we are in summer now, truly and definitely in summer. A couple of little things about what's going on with me. Nancy and I are headed out on the road at the end of August Dates are all up on my website, ianfoster.ca, as well as ticket links to buy tickets to the show. Would really like you to come to these. There's some some new stuff that we're trying. Nancy's singing a bunch of stuff she's never sang before on stage. I'm singing some new songs, both by artists that I love, and also some new stuff of mine that I've been that I've been working out, working out in the workshop for the last little while. So it would be cool to see you there. So check us out um, end of August. A couple of dates as well here in in, in early July. Um, other than that, I've been in the studio working on some records for some other artists, working on some stuff of my own, fooling around with this thing called a Roly. Um, if you haven't seen one, look it up. It's like a silicone kind of keyboard. They call it a five-dimensional keyboard, like a fretless keyboard. There's a bunch of ways people have described it. The reality is mind-bending sound. It is it is very cool. This is not sponsored by Roly. It, it should be. Uh, that would be great, actually, if they hear this. Uh, please give me more free things of of this thing because it's it's pretty amazing. But I've been having a lot of fun on a couple of people's records playing with this thing, and uh, and maybe at some point in this podcast, I will truly morph it into like music demos a little bit and I'll upload some stuff. But it's worth noting that the theme song for this podcast is something that I played and it's all played on the Roly, including that little Qatari sounding thing. That's actually a keyboard. Spoilers. So there you go. Pretty cool. My guest today is Agnes Walsh, poet from Newfoundland. She is a fascinating lady, has lived a very cool life and has some just great thoughts on all kinds of subjects that we get into here over this two-part, fairly lengthy two-part episode, I think. This might be the longest one so far. We'll see when it all mixes down. Um, in this first episode, we get a bit into her life and how writing poetry and even reading poetry works. We kind of talk about the similarities between between songs and poetry and and the differences, of course. There's certainly many of those. It's just, I had a really good time talking to Agnes. You'll hear at the end, as I say, I could talk to her all day long, and it's, and it's true. So I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with Agnes Walsh. Hi, Agnes. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Yeah. Um, you're from Placentia? Yeah, I, I grew up there. Yeah. Tell me a little about growing up there. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I grew up when it wasn't very big. It's still not very big, but uh, it wasn't. The town itself wasn't very big. But um, I think, in a way, I say that we were fortunate enough that there was an American base uh, mm. about three miles away. And a lot of people think that 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 was a ruination, really. But I found it really exciting. Why um, was it exciting? Well, because. Um, I was exposed to a whole lot of things I would never have been exposed to. I I was always really curious about everything. And um, they, there was a radio station on the base, and I used to listen to that all the time. And I, you know, I just, I just heard, I heard different accents, like I heard Southern accents and Brooklyn accents, and then I heard music I probably wouldn't have heard. Um, and uh, and then when I started to sneak into the bass, <laughs> it was great because I would hear live bands from the States and uh, get a chance to dance and all kinds of stuff. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Paint me a bit more of a picture about growing up there. I mean, obviously, we're going to get into talking about, you know, your poetry, but I just kind of want to, I want to know about kind of the lead up to that. How, uh, how the, just the earliest years, you know, what was Newfoundland like at that point, especially in, in Mm. more of an outport area? Well, I was born in 1950. Uh, so, uh, I, I didn't, you know, when you're growing up, you don't think about anything being isolated because it's all you know. Um, but I I always was so much in love with the area, like the, everything in the area. I mean, I would walk up through the hills and roam down on the beach and um, everything was just, I don't know, pretty gaga to me. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't take a lot to make me really happy. Right. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a small town. Placentia, when the res- well before yeah it was around the resettlement time when that happened, um, people moved in from the islands in the bay, and that was a big deal. So what was going on at that time was also the American base. The American mm. base had been there since the forties, I think. But you had we had people from, uh, I don't know, I think there was something like six or seven thousand people on that base. And there was, I don't know, there wasn't that many in the town, certainly. And then we had people coming in from the islands. And right. uh, so, and and that was a strange juxtaposition because you had, you know, people who I thought were like really kind of very fancy and exotic. And then people coming in from the bay who seemed like they were just very frightened and shy or else really... Um, kind of boisterous Newfoundlanders, you know. <laughs> so, but they didn't seem strange to me at right. all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, what does that do to the identity of the town? You know, I mean, obviously, like you're saying, there was more people on the base than there were in the town. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, like I say, I think growing up there, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. But I, and I left there when I was young, when I was only 17. And uh, and I was away. No, I went straight to New York. Oh wow, cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I had three sisters who married American sailors, and um, one of them was in Connecticut. The other one was in Idaho, and the other was in Florida. And so I I um, I really had a hard time in school. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved it. I loved school, but I really felt like I wasn't learning anything when I was about 15 and 16. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in literature, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was interested in languages and, but I couldn't get anything from the teachers, you know, Mm -hmm. I, uh, so I remember I, um, I told my mother I was going to quit. My mother and my father was going to quit. And uh, that wasn't a big thing back then. You know, it was like, oh, well, my mother said, well, you'll probably figure it out. You know, she wasn't too worried about me. She didn't really want me to, but she wasn't too worried about it. And I got a hold of my sister in Connecticut and said, uh, I got to get away from these nuns. I've got to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And she totally understood. So I went to visit her. And I also went to visit two American sailors that I knew there, one in New York and another in New Jersey. Uh, and I ended up, uh, I ended up actually marrying one of them and it was a kind of a marriage of convenience. We both kind of knew that we were both in love, but, mm. um, I knew, I said to him, mm, I'm too young, you know, I don't think I want to stay in one place or anything. And he said, okay, well, let's just see how it goes. And, wow. and uh, yeah, <laughs> so, um, so he was in New Jersey and I was in New Jersey with him for a while and I worked in Manhattan which was great. I was, um, you know, when I think back on it, I was, I wasn't afraid of anything. Like it was just nothing for me to get up in the morning and take a bus into Manhattan and, and work and then get off work and go down to Greenwich Village and hang out and then catch the last bus back from Port Authority back home to New Jersey and get up and do the same thing again. <laughs> it was right, right. fantastic. You know, yeah. it's funny. I, uh, I think back to the, the first year's of touring and and I remember so many different people from different facets of my life um just talking to me and going like so how did you like they use the term brave and I always thought that that was really funny for Mm. some reason I don't know why it just never it just struck me as like like I remember the first time I heard it there was almost like a disconnect of 
of so, like what's brave, you mm. know? And and I guess they were talking about the idea of getting into a car and mm. driving to another right. province and yeah. just playing shows in random clubs and places where you knew no one, mm-hmm. and then getting and sleeping maybe like on you know someone's couch, yeah. you know, and then getting in the car and and going on to the next gig in a whole other place. And it just never struck me as brave. And I look back and I'm like, I guess I I still don't think of it as brave, but I guess it's, it's that fearlessness or something or, or just, and when you go and do it, it just felt matter of fact. Like there was never something about it that makes me think, like, I don't look back now and think, wow, I I was crazy to do that. It it seemed fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's sort of the same for me. I just, I had it in my head that I wasn't going to stay in Placentia. I Mm. knew that. Uh, I also knew that I didn't want to, you know, like do what so many other girls I knew were doing. They were getting pregnant and leaving or going away, marrying and getting pregnant and starting a family right away. I just didn't want any part of that at all. Mm. Um, I knew I wanted to be educated, but I knew I wasn't going to get that education in Placentia or Mm. even St. John's. I didn't even, I didn't even really know what St. John's was. I'd only been in, I think in here once or twice or three times at the most. Right. But uh, no, I had no fear. It was just, you know, I felt like I was starving, so I would eat anything, you know, almost. I just, everything is out there, and I felt like it was there just for me. Like, I never forget, you know, getting down on 42nd Street and looking up at the buildings and thinking, wow, like, I always knew I'd be here. Like, I just know this is just meant to be. It's just perfect. And it wasn't that I had a big um, career in mind. Nothing like that. It's right. just that I knew that I wanted to absorb that place as much as I could, and Placentia was too small. Right. And so I had to go to one of the biggest cities in North America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. it's so important to do that, um, especially at the age as we're both talking about, mm-hmm. right? Because I think we we mm-hmm. learn fear as we get yeah. a little older. And yeah. I think once you, if you've done that stuff at an age where you are you know, you just kind of go and do it. Yeah. I think you can look back and that gives you a, a, a different kind of faith in yourself. Yeah. Like we, I think we all get nervous about traveling somewhere sometimes. I mean, I still do. And I, I, I've been a bunch of places through music, but, mm-hmm. but I kind of remind myself when I feel that way, I'm like, you've, you've done this a thousand times. Yeah. Like, and that settles me in a way That's that right. yeah. if it was the first time now, I'd probably have built up more paranoia about yeah. travel or I, I think, I think so. I think I am probably more nervous now. Yeah. Than I ever was. Mm. Uh, it doesn't stop me. But I can't remember any fear at all then. Wow. I'm sure I didn't have any. What were you doing in New York? You said you were working. Um, well, I got a job. There was an ad in a, in a newspaper. Uh, they wanted, uh, what was it? I can't remember what they called it. Um, oh, anyway, what the job ended up being was at RCA Recording Studio. Cool. And messenger. That's it, a messenger. And I thought, a messenger? And I thought, like, I have no idea what that is. So anyway, I got in there, and I was interviewed. And they said, okay, can you start tomorrow? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, you, what you do is that you go from one recording studio to another, or you go for, to a, a room. There was a name on these rooms, and there's going to be, say, musicians in there, and you're going to tell them that in 15 minutes, Studio A will be ready, so make sure you're ready, and sorry to keep you waiting, but Studio B... And I thought, okay, well, I don't need a college education for that. (laughs) And it was great, and they even told me if I wanted, I could get a pair of roller skates to go around to do all this, because there was another guy there who used roller skates to go just whizzing around. But uh, I That's ended amazing. up meeting you know, like like crazy slick, you know. I remember Jefferson Airplane was was there. That's that's a group that I. That's about the only really famous one that I, that I knew of that was there, right. doing that at the time. Yeah. Any particular anecdotes that pop to mind of just those people and working in that environment? Obviously, look who you're talking to. I'm definitely interested. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not really. I can. I just remember everybody was very laid back. You know, I. I just, I thought, wow, like, you know, musicians are so chilled out. It's just, like, I never felt that they were bossy or, you know, or anything, you know. And and there was all, I wish I could remember, you know, some of them are probably really famous that I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you don't forget Gracie Slick when you when you meet her. I right. mean, her speaking voice even was incredible, you know. <laughs> and she was dressed am- amazingly. But that, yeah, and I, 
And I used to, when I used to go to, to Greenwich Village in the evenings, um, just to go down and hear, because I knew it was a place where poets hung out and musicians. And uh, and there was a bar that I went to one evening. I, I didn't so much go to bars. I just, it was more like coffee shops, that kind of thing. But there was a, um, a bar called the Electric Circus, I think. Mm-hmm. I always thought I'd never forget that. And I remember walking in this evening and sitting down and and looking, and the stage was just this little corner, like right sort of a little bit further away. And I thought, God, and this guy was playing guitar. And I thought, oh, he's so incredibly handsome, and he's so different looking. And, oh, he's clothes. And I wasn't even paying attention to the way he was playing the guitar, but you know who it was? It was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> And all, I can just remember his velvet jacket and these scarves and the hair and everything. And <laughs> I don't remember a thing what he sounded like wow. whatsoever. I was just blown away by how handsome he was to right. me. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think I read uh, uh, you talked, uh, maybe it was with Beth Follett. There was an interview and you were, oh, right. I, I just read this fairly recently. And you were talking about, I guess, different places you had gone. You mentioned New York and you mm-hmm. talked about Dylan a little bit in yeah. relation to that. Yeah. So did you, you went like to seek out Dylan? Well, yeah, I mean, not really so much, but I knew that chances are he might be around there. And and it wasn't, I wasn't starstruck, I don't think. It was just, I kind of just wanted to be in that atmosphere of, at that time, well, to go back further um, to Placentia, I was lucky enough to meet um this American serviceman, I was at the snack bar in Placentia, and uh, uh, I remember they used to come out, I think it was once a week, and change the two or three songs on the jukebox and bring out new songs. Mm. So I'd always just keep a quarter on me and, and go play the new songs. And um, so there was, it was a Friday evening, I think, and there was lots of people in there. There was lots of Americans and lots of local guys and girls. And, and so I just went over, and I, I remember I pressed A1 and A2 and then some other ones. And as I was walking away, what I had played was uh, like a Rolling Stone. And I'd never heard it before, never heard Bob Dylan before. But as I was walking back to the counter, this young uh, guy said to me, he said, oh, you like Bob Dylan? I said, if that's who that is, yeah, I definitely like him. And then we got talking, and this young guy was from Brooklyn, and he was a poet, and uh, I told him that I wrote too. And so we exchanged our poems, and we got together. He used to sneak books off the base library for me. So he'd bring out all of these books, um, just people I couldn't get my hands on, even like Longfellow and Yeats. And, and, uh, but he introduced me to the Beat Poets, and I thought that was pretty exciting. Mm. Yeah, so and I did go to New York then and met him. And that was a strange experience. Oh, really? How so? <laughs> well, we met. He, I, I, his name was I actually dedicated my first book of poetry to him. Uh, his name was Thomas Joseph James Bonfiglio. And, <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's Tom Bonfiglio. Uh, he was real. Uh, he was real smart guy, and he was real. Like he was real different, you know, the things that he was interested in, I really liked. Um, but so um, I got in touch with him and told him I was, we were never romantically involved we, at, when we were in Placentia. I kind of liked him, I think, more than he liked me, but we, we were really good buddies. But um, I remember, so he said, okay, well, when you come into the city, I'll meet you in front of the United Nations building. And I said, okay, great. So I met him there and I hadn't seen him in about a year, I guess. And uh, so we just spent the evening bumming around New York, just going in and out of places and having coffees and, and talking and talking and talking. And, um, and then he said to me, why don't you stay with me in the city? And I said, yeah, sure, okay, I will. And so <laughs> I remember we, he rented a room in the Roxy Hotel. I wish I could find it now that I'm, I haven't thought about this in years. And, uh, and I remember we both... Late, I guess I'm getting really personal here, but anyway. No, it's great. We both lay down on the bed, and uh, I used to, I, I, I had false eyelashes on. That was a big thing then, right? Yeah. In the 67, this was. Right. And uh, I remember I took off my false eyelashes and put them on the, the table next to me, and he picked them up and put them on. And I said, Tom, 
are you gay? And he said, yeah. He said, I thought you'd never notice that. And I said, oh, okay, that's cool. I didn't know. And I, I, I really had never met a gay person before that that I knew. You know? Right. But uh, so, yeah, so I kind of wanted to say, oh, so that's why you didn't like me. <laughs> so much. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whatever happened to him. I never could find him after that. Was, did you literally lose touch around yeah. that time? Yeah, we oh, wow. did not long after that. I often wonder, because I have a funny feeling he was into drugs too, like right. maybe heavy drugs, Right. I think. Mm. But he was really, really a really smart guy. Like his IQ, evidently, I found this out, was like way over the, the, the spectrum kind of thing, you know? Wow. Yeah, he was put immediately into naval intelligence when he got to Argentia and uh, was working so all this top secret stuff. Right. Yeah, he was only 18. Wow. It's <laughs> yeah. incredible, you know, th- those feels cinematic, you know, the way certain mm-hmm. people kind of come into your life for yeah. a little period almost just to, to show you something. Yeah, that's and right. Then, then move away, you know. Yeah, it's uh, that was a really important meeting for me, for sure, in my life. It's uh, He was the first person, yeah, that I ever showed my poetry to. Right. Uh, and he was encouraging. And he was very honest. Like, he was honest about everything, really. And he was he was honest about when I was hitting it and when, you know, when he thought I wasn't. Mm. And How? it made me write a lot. Right. He, he was like a teacher in a way, really. Give me, give me a little context now for, you know, where poetry has been weaving between all of these stories. Like, obviously, you started writing from a young age. Like, yeah. you were still in Placentia at the time. Yeah, I was. So, so what, do, you remember, do you remember your first poem? Uh, I think it, I, I remember a bunch of poems. Um, I was writing a lot of um, kind of anti-war poems and political poems and not so much love-type poems. Um, but I was, yeah, I, I, I was kind of real political as a teenager, you know, mm-hmm. and um, was writing about a lot of injustice, and that was a pretty active time anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the civil rights marches and all that that I would sometimes see on television in mm. Placentia. But, um, uh, but uh, yeah, and I think I, I don't know, I, you know, I remember going to the library in Placentia and taking out books, and I just stumble upon a book of poetry. I don't remember being taught it in school at all. Uh, and just to me, I couldn't get over it because it was like I was reading another language, but it was English. Mm. And I thought, wow, I'd rather, much rather talk about a flower that way than just say it's yellow and all this stuff. And I just, to me, it just opened up the world for me, too. I I just, uh, yeah, and I still haven't lost that feeling about poetry, but but I always thought that poetry was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I we, we, we talked briefly about this the, uh, recently when we were chatting about how you use the phrase, it's it's the dark going for the bullseye. Yeah. I thought that was a really yeah great description. That's the, when I think I was telling you that day that whenever I've given classes in creative writing and poetry, that that's what I'll, I'll always tell my students, you know, like get rid of as many words as you can. That's the kind of poetry I like anyway. It's mm-hmm. hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you, you aim, you pick up that dart and you aim for the bullseye because everything around it is just superfluous words that you probably don't really need and right. you go from there kind of thing yeah 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 it's uh it's a great way to think about it you know i mean I, there's a whole other discussion to have about lyric versus poetry which i actually love having you know uh mm-hmm. for, to see what people think about that i think but but aside from that i think that songs are similar in the sense that you have often three to four minutes to tell some sort of yeah. story and that that it's often at least in popular music both lyric and music mm-hmm. and how they're a 50 50 split like they are an amalgam for a reason it's music and not poetry for that reason yeah and the music is 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 interacting equally with the words mm-hmm. and and it still has to be a very concise story yeah you know? and, that's right and it's yeah. a whole world and yeah. In three minutes. In three minutes. No time yeah. to spare. You know? Yeah, that's right. And poetry. And poetry, too, I always thought of as a kind of a hidden world. You know, it, it was not necessarily always easy. You had to go in and uh, and try to figure out what was going on or like, or why is this person writing like this? Um, I, I felt like I had a pretty good antenna from early on to... Uh, 
what was kind of bullshit and what wasn't, you know. I mean, not bullshit, that's too strong a word, I guess. What was, like, you know, what was sentimental mm. and what was kind of like poetry that I didn't like, like Hallmark card type Reader's Digest sort of stuff, you know. I think I cottoned onto that really early on, really fast, maybe because I was reading so much. So, of course, the more you're exposed to, the higher your standards go up, I guess. You know? Totally, yeah. totally. I'm sure this is a very difficult thing to explain because it's sort of asking someone to explain their their antenna, you know, but what, if you could put it in words, maybe you have for students or you've been forced to try to put it in words for students, how would you articulate that? How do you articulate the ability? Like what are the, is, I know there's no checklist, but you know what I mean? What, what are the things that clearly distinguish, you know, for you, you're like, that's sentimental and that's not, what is it? Is it a believability in the voice? Is it like, what is it? Hmm. Um, probably an impossible question i apologize no it's not actually it's a great one it's a great question um i think what it is is when the poet makes you see things in a way that you hadn't thought before you know when you think what a way to express something um what a way to come about to this kind of analysis or or what a strange mind must be in there that you know what a um what different things go on in people's mind and and then you know what makes somebody like Yeats so different than Philip Larkin you know those it's two different minds going there completely mm, mm. and that always intrigued me I mean I guess you can get that for, of course you can from, from music or from fiction um, painting uh, but poetry is you know it's just a little bit it, it you know for a lot of people it's difficult and I understand that there's a lot of difficult poetry out mm -hmm. there. I mean, I'm just trying right now to frigging understand this poem by Paul Celan, and I think it might as well be another language, actually. I mean, he did write in German, but it was translated, and that's another whole thing with poetry, it's translation, but it, it's, it's so odd, because then I read this fiction writer who was talking about that poem, another strange coincidence. I seem to have a lot of them in my life. But and, and so this writer uh, is Karl Ove Kunisgaard. He's a Norwegian writer. And he spent a, lo a lot of time on this one poem by Paul Celan. And I thought, holy Christ, I never saw what you're seeing at all, Karl Ove. I've never, you know. And I thought he could be completely right in how he's interpreting that, or he could be completely wrong. Mm. I, but at least somebody is <laughs> kind of not explaining it to me, but telling me what he sees in it. Because I couldn't get anywhere with it. I, I, it, was, it was so difficult. But I, I don't mind that. And, and I don't think it's pretentious, and I don't think that poets do that on purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we hear things, and we try to get them out. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about that when it comes to contextualize like do you feel when you encounter a poem that is is very dense and difficult to get into do you do you sort of feel like you need to kind of pick away at it personally to access that world or do you ever feel like it's cheating if you're like I'm gonna go read more about the bio of this poet to try to get some insight into mm -hmm. what they're talking about oh I, I would do that yeah. yeah I definitely would I don't think the more you know the better I, I think you know. right it's but like I, reading the liner notes of a record you're like I want to yeah, know who was involved in this sure. and why it came out this way yeah, yeah. well when I came across uh, Kanuska talking about him I was delighted and, and um, it didn't ruin the poem for me and it doesn't ruin the poem for me if I don't understand it. Sometimes, you know, it's like looking at a poem and wondering, like, why do we break the poem up that way? Mm. Like, why do we make these? Like, well, I don't even know when I'm writing a poem why I'm doing what I'm doing to it. I kind of trust something inside me that the line should break there. And I might, um, I think, you know, for me, usually the way I write is I just kind of get it down and try not to edit myself. I just try to go with it, and then I go back into it and find the rhythms. But usually the rhythms are pretty close to what I've already done. Mm -hmm. Not always, mm. but uh, yeah. 
when Des was here a few days ago, we talked about how, how how Des was in for one of these, and he, I remember he explicitly said that writing is really difficult for him, mm-hmm. that it's 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 a challenge. It always has been. Mm-hmm. It remains so. Mm-hmm. And I read. Uh, an interview with you where you talked about how mostly writing energizes you, at mm-hmm. least in the initial creation stage. Yeah. I'd yeah. love to just hear your thoughts on, on that yeah. kind of juxtaposition, you know? I think it used to be easier for me than it is now. Mm. You know, um, I think it, it was the best for me in my late twenties to late thirties, probably there was a 10 years there where I just felt like it was um, I I would I don't want to say easy, because it's not easy if you're trying to get to say something and you can't quite get there. So, and that's always what a poem is, I guess, really. Uh, but um, it's it's when I can when I can write the way that I want to write, it really does energize me. I I just um, it's the happiest time that I feel. Mm. But uh, but that's getting harder and harder, mm. I find. Yeah. And why um, do you think that is? I don't. Well, you know, Rambo burnt out at twenty one. <laughs> why am I sticking to it? Why is Dad sticking to it? Right. Uh, uh, I don't. I I don't know. I I think poetry. I, I'm trying to think if there's any poets that are still still writing in their sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. There probably is. Mm. Um, there's some, I don't know. I always think there's something about poetry that there is a, a, a span that you get, and that's that's when it's the best. Like now, it's really difficult for me writing. Mm. Really, really difficult. I um, I burn more than I save because mm. I'm. I just feel like I'm at this age where if I can't do it now, by now, then you know. I, it just takes me one glance at, at the work and I'll say, uh-uh, no, this is not going to go anywhere, so just get rid of it. Whereas maybe in my 20s I would have, you know, kept a line or two and worked it and worked it and worked it. But but I... I um, Do you think that's a, a, a result of, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this as some sort of a compliment to a leading question here, but do you think that's a result of mastery of what you're doing, as in you actually have a, a better context for what you do and more of a filter now so you're even more picky about what you do i i i don't know that i uh, all i really know is that it's difficult to get to where i could so easily get to before Mm. i I can read poets now and go oh holy shit like that's really a good poem oh my gosh like how did mm, mm," you know it's just like that's a really intricate different way of thinking and just love it so much and and then i'm feeling like i don't think i can get there anymore and mm. you know but i'm okay with that mm-hmm. and I, actually it's not like i'm really depressed about it I'm, i come to terms with it i still really like writing dialogue so i mean i i had my own theater company for 12 years and i cranked out 10 plays a poem a play a year and i still go back to dialogue i can Hmm. still love to write dialogue i mean that gets me really high right now interesting oh yeah what do you think that theater gives you that poetry doesn't and vice versa uh it's there's a more of a a freedom I, i feel like in poetry i'm always trying to um i'm always trying to get somewhere you know I'm always trying to get to it's not really a point but um, I'm always trying to see trying to uh, see if there's if there's something in my brain that I want to say through a poem and when I can I'm always I go oh wow that's great like I, I I'm really glad that that's in there whereas with dialogue uh i just feel like all these characters are with me and they're whoa hi how you doing today and they're right along for the ride and it's just um well okay that's a great thing to say and so he's going to respond to that and okay and it's just not for some reason that's just been coming a lot easier over the past 20 years than Mm. the poetry yeah interesting yeah that's interesting um 
I don't know if I answered your question, or I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> it was about uh, theater and and poetry and what they gave you or didn't didn't give you. You know, yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by that because, I mean, every artist we know probably collectively uh, does more than one thing. That's the nature of yeah. being an artist, and and probably the luckiest ones in an ideal world. Hopefully, all those things are art. They're mm. not always. You know, not there's always. There's the day no. job, and that's yeah. totally fine too. Yeah. Um. But uh. But yeah, for me, I mean, I I've my personal goal has always been to just to do multiple things, but surround myself with things that, that offer something else like producing a mm-hmm. record for an artist offers mm-hmm. me something different than yeah. writing songs yeah. and composing for a film, yeah. you know, like when I first composed for film, it was a surprisingly liberating experience that I loved. And I remember some people around me thought that I wouldn't like it because writing was a blank page you can mm-hmm. go anywhere and create anything yeah. and there's all the pros and cons yeah. with that and then they're like well film is the opposite like someone's going to come to you and they're going to mm-hmm. have a very specific vision and it's going to be a very specific scene and mm-hmm. you're going to have to only like it's going to have to be exactly what this other person wants yeah. and i remember thinking that's exactly why i want to do it it's, yeah. it gives me something completely different it's a freedom there isn't there there is yeah sometimes yeah. you know there was you know being able to go anywhere yeah can be a curse yeah as much as a blessing it yeah it's like you know there, is there all that much freedom and freedom <laughs> right <laughs> you know? for the arts sometimes i think no i i'm and i found that that's it was almost like um I got, I got into a swing with writing plays, and it was that was sort of like my day job, although I held it as important as the poetry. Mm-hmm. But I guess I call it, I'd call it a day job because it was moving easier for me than, than that difficult dark night of the soul that poetry can be. You know? Right. Yeah. That reminds me. I, I know I keep bringing up Des here, but that mm-hmm. reminds me of another thing he he said. Uh, I'll I'll play I'll play this as a back to back. I'll just yeah. I'll I'll cut cut you guys out so it looks like you're having the conversation. You can talk to each other. And I'm just kidding. Um, but he <laughs> no talk about this. I love hearing what this says. <laughs> he he used a phrase to me. He said, uh, "Ultimately, all art is a betrayal." Hmm. And uh, you know, again, I don't want to misconstrue his context. It is on tape, obviously. Hmm. But he was talking about betraying yourself, your country, your loved one, all that for art curious what you think Hmm. about that i wonder what way did he mean betrayal yeah i wondered if he uh was using it as i guess a description of um uh knowing the art has to come first and Mm. going down whatever avenue that means Mm. um so even if it's going to upset people even if it's going to Uh, be potentially detrimental to something that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, well, uh, a prime example of that is, um, in, do you know about that Norwegian writer, Karlove Kunisgard? He wrote a series of, of, um, of six books in a series called My Struggle, or Mein Kampf. <laughs> you know? right. um, and he has been sued by his uncle. Uh, he is, his wife left him. I don't know for sure if she left him because of what he wrote. I don't think so. I don't know, of course. But uh, but he took it upon himself to write about his life. And mostly, I believe, um, a memoir, but with fiction in there. And um, so he knows he's, he's betrayed so many people. And his uncle, his father's brother, uh, said, you had no right to talk about my brother like that. But but Karlovy's father was very cruel, so he wanted that he wanted to understand that, and the way he felt he could understand it, try to understand it, was by writing it. Mm. So he's gotten himself in a whole lot of shit right now. Uh, he's a multimillionaire uh, because, like, he just overnight these books. Well, I mean, cranking them out is something else. I'm reading the last one now, and it's like 1,500 pages long, and he's an amazing thinker. I mean, he goes from. You know, he's t- talking about why he called the book, the series, My Struggle, and, and he's talking about Hitler. and But he talks about all these philosophers, these painters, and it's just, his mind is wonderful. Mm. I, I just, so, so that sense of betrayal, and he's, he's, um, he has a lot of guilt, you know? Well, it, my last collection of poetry, O'Dearn, is about my mother's life, mm-hmm. and she's dead. 
would I show it to her if she was alive? I think I would um, because she told me everything that's in that book. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't make anything up. Um, but, I mean, now it's out there. Does, you know, would she want everybody to know that? My mother probably would. I'm lucky in that way. I don't feel like I've betrayed her. But um, I've written some poems to people because I was angry, and they're published, and they're out there, mm-hmm. and uh, that's tricky. How do we decide that? Yeah, what goes mm-hmm. out and what doesn't? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's an honesty thing. You know, I, there's a musician named Kayla Mahoney that I had in here, and I asked him the impossible question, and it was a home rule one in this case because it was music-related. I said, what makes a great song? Which is a horrible question to ask someone. Again, it's like mm-hmm. asking what makes a great poem. Mm-hmm. Well, how many years do we have to yeah. try to answer that it's, question? It's always you know? good to try, though. It's good to yeah. try. I'm yeah. like, I know this yeah. question ultimately will fail no matter what, but you, well, let's see what comes out of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and he said, I think it's about believing in it, which mm-hmm. in a way is it's one of those answers that is obviously there's probably tons of bad songs objectively that people believed in but mm-hmm. but i also understood what he meant you know the idea mm-hmm. that um that's one of those things that you can sense right that i feel like that's the it's like you talking about feeling like you had a good radar right away for the mm-hmm. sentimental poetry versus something else it's mm-hmm. like i feel like you can sense if the mm-hmm. artist actually believes in it mm-hmm. and like all the other factors of good production or a good band performance or all that, like all that would fail if the person didn't believe in it mm-hmm. and pursue it honestly, yeah. you know, which can't necessarily be said the other way around. Like I feel like I've heard recordings that weren't great recordings or maybe the performance wasn't particularly, you know, I mean, if you look at some of the Dylan records, I mean, performance mm-hmm. wise, they're sloppy and oh, all yeah. the place. Like you could sit down and tear them apart in it's a absolutely. musical way. But yeah the belief is what saves yeah. them, you know. Well, and I guess like there's two sides to that because maybe some of the recordings or maybe even some of the things that he wrote that may not be as great as something like, like a Rolling Stone or, you know, I mean, it, it, I don't, you know, I think it's really hard to be doing great work all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's exhausting, mm-hmm. really. Uh, um, no matter how much I loved writing those plays, there is still, like I would push myself sometimes because I knew I was onto something, so I'd keep with it. But it was like three o'clock in the morning and my head was killing me. And uh, I knew I had to get up and get the kids to school and all this stuff. And But, um, y- you know, it's like... Uh, yeah, in in a like I remember being young and knowing the things that I wanted to do and knowing that I loved something so much, that that it was not um, a boy, you know, that my heart wasn't depending, that it was like something I could do that was coming out of me unto into, who knows? I didn't know anything about publishing then, you know, but mm-hmm. but I just thought that wow, like this is amazing that I have this in me. And I felt with that, I can do anything. I can go to New York tomorrow. I can just, I, you know, I, I can go, I can finish school. I can go to university if I want to. I can do all those things, which I did. And, um, and for some reason, that was in me. And it's funny because there's friends that I grew up with uh, and one close friend who is dead now. And she always said to me, Ag, I don't know where you got that thing in you. Like, you never doubted. And I went, what? I've always doubted. Yeah. I've Everything I'm not sure of, but still, like, just doing it was better than not doing it. I'd like to talk a little about that with relation to, because you have just released a book in mm-hmm. November, right? Uh, last December, yeah. Oh, last December, yeah. yeah. A couple of months ago. So, yeah, a couple of months ago. So, and, and just refresh me on the time frame here how what was the previous book what was the most recent one before that before that it was a collection of plays that i that i did for my theater group out in on the cape shore okay so how many um well i guess just just to kind of stick through a a line of thought here how many years between your previous book of poetry and this one oh i think going around with bachelors i think was maybe 96 oh wow okay i'm a really slow writer 
Not really. How consistent, mm. I know that's a period of time, but mm. were you consistently writing poems and either keeping them or trashing them for yeah. all that period? I like was. there was no gap of years where you didn't write any poems. No. Constantly. constantly. Wow. Even when I was writing the plays, I was always writing the poems. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and this past year actually was the first time that I thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to get rid of these uh, because I write everything by hand, right. you know, and um, I like doing that. Right. Uh, so I did, I started, I sat down and I made myself look at them and I have a wood stove. So I opened up the wood stove door and just, and it was good. It felt great. Like I didn't, you know, I remember telling somebody that and they went, Oh my God, you should let somebody look at them first. And I went, no, 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 I'm the best judge here. I, you know, I know, Mm. I know for sure. I'm not piddling around with this stuff. If I couldn't get it to work 10 years ago, it's not going to work now. It's just, that's magic. And I don't, I'm not magical. (laughs) Wow. So, so, so you finally settled on this collection after the wood stove incident, you know, um, how did that feel? Was there sort of a moment where you sat down and looked at this collection as a whole? And uh, obviously that moment happened, but I just mean like, what was that like in terms of, uh, going, this is the collection I feel fill in the blank about this relieved, stressed, (laughs) exhausted. All of those. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, because I worked on that Odearan manuscript. Well, I, I started it. My mother was still alive, and she was uh, pretty healthy. Uh, she, I know that I was the I was the teller of of the tale in my family. You know, she knew I was the one who I was the one who listened. My other sisters were either not interested to go in that deep or or maybe afraid. But I always asked her questions about her life. And she always talked to me. And she talked to me more and more, opened up more and more. <clears throat> and then she, so I, I was taking notes and writing poems. And then she got dementia. And that was a whole other thing. I thought, oh my God, like, uh, I thought, do I stop now? Because I can just write a poem about this part of her life. But Every time I would go to see her, um, there would be something. And so I would go out into the waiting room and sit down and and write something down. It wouldn't be a poem. It would be like a little something on paper. And and then she died. Mm -hmm. And then I couldn't look at the manuscript at all. I, I remember it was what used to be my daughter's old bedroom that I turned into an office. And, um, I kept that room closed for about four years three or four years and uh, I just couldn't go back to it I I felt like it was none of my business Hmm. that I had gone that really what I had if I had done anything for my mother it was to listen to her and Hmm. understand you know be there for her and then that 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 was it I couldn't and but when I finally did go back to it, I it was really difficult. Not not so much emotionally. I, I was when I did go back to it, I was ready to go back to it. But I just didn't know what I had on my hands. I had about, you couldn't necessarily access the same place again. Is that what it was that you were in a different place with the whole situation? Well, I had written so many poems, and all of them seemed important, but not all of them seemed good. Mm. So I really had to start all over again. I literally had hundreds of poems and that I had to rework. Um, oh, it was, it was, and, and I, I was never really happy with, with the end. I, mm. I'm still not really happy with that. Really? <laughs> you know? I'm not, no, uh, I'm not completely. I don't know why. I mm. don't even know if I want to know why. Do you think from you've had experience with the arc of publishing and creating, do you think you will figure it out? Do you think that it's just too fresh to know right now? Maybe, yeah. Hmm. Hadn't thought of that, but... It's, you know, when my other books of poetry came out, I remember after they were published, reading them and and, and thinking, okay, so this is going to be me now for forever <laughs> out there in the world, and, and just reading the books over and... I haven't gone back and read O'Dearn. Hmm. Can't believe I haven't done a book of plays. I've read every play through. Uh, I haven't. I don't know what that. Maybe it is just so emotionally close to me. Hmm. It, it might be. 
a mother and daughter relationship, you know, they're, they're, of course. Yeah. They're pretty fueled. I was about to ask you, because mm-hmm. we talked about you having some of your work with you, right. if you had any, if you had O'Dearn here with you. I you... didn't. <laughs> I, I, and then I, I was like, I shouldn't it. ask you no, to read that. <laughs> I didn't take that. And I thought, no, I won't take that because I haven't actually even reread that. I don't know if I'd know any of the rhythms in it anymore. Oh, interesting. It's <laughs> strange. Yeah, I should have brought it. Do you yeah. feel when you look over your oldest material, do you, does it still, does it feel like you? I mean, I asked that from the perspective of, looking at my oldest records and I have this weird, almost disassociative thing with them sometimes mm-hmm. where, um, if, uh, some of them, I don't play any of the songs anymore, uh, live. Mm-hmm. Some of them I do. And when I go back and listen, it sounds like a version. It sounds like someone doing a cover mm-hmm. of what I, it's like a reverse cover. Do you know oh, what I mean? Okay. Like yeah. I'm now playing the song yeah. in such a different way, 10 years later yeah. or 15 years later uh-huh. that when I go back and listen to the record version, I'm like, Oh, this one, it feels different. It feels like me, but yeah. it also doesn't feel like doesn't me. feel like you. Yeah. yeah. Do you have that at all with poetry? I think I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially some of the poems that I felt that were so emotionally important to me. Mm. And now I go back and I think, oh, glad I got over that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this was me working through it or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, oh, I don't know if I would publish that now. You know, I'm not too sure about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Des, Des said a phrase where he said the earliest stuff, he's like, it's out there. And if I won the lottery, what I would do is try to go buy up every copy of it to destroy it. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you would. Uh, <laughs> I don't no. think you would. No. Well, it was great because I remember when I came back to Newfoundland and I met Des in 76, I think it was, and he was doing some editing work at Breakwater. And uh, we all piled in a car one night. He can't remember this, I don't think, but we all piled in a car one night. He had been asking me for some poem, poems, you know, and, all, and I said, yeah, yeah, but I was kind of too shy, really. So I had brought these poems to the ship in one night and stuffed them in my coat. And then there was a party organized and a whole bunch of us got in a taxi and went out somewhere. And, in, and Des was in the same taxi with me. And I pulled out the poems and I gave them to him. And I said, here they are. And he started to read them in the car. And I was just sweating. I was like, oh, shit, like I shouldn't have done this. I just had a few beers in me now and I'm brave. And um, he didn't say anything. He just sort of coughed and went, <clears throat> stuck him in his pocket. And he said, do you mind? And I said, no, 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 that's fine. And then he called me and he asked me if he could publish them in uh, 31 Newfoundland Poets, a collection. So right. I was delighted because I knew I knew that I trusted his opinion. Mm. I... Uh, from having talks with him about poetry. I knew he was he was the real thing. And that's the end of part one. Seemed like a good place to close off with a little anecdote about a former guest, Des Walsh. Not related, by the way, to Agnes Walsh, even though they're both from the same place. <laughs> so join us next week for part two. If you're listening to this, please subscribe and rate on the podcast app of your choice. It helps out with helping people get to know this podcast and we'll see you next time.